This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about settlement solutions, litigation, mediation, and structured financial security from Ringler, the largest and most experienced company of settlement consultants in the United States. Ringler has been helping injured people and their families since 1975. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by American General, Liberty Mutual, MetLife, Mutual of Omaha, New York Life, Pacific Life, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello and welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and we're certainly glad you could join us again today. Well, just at the time when many of us will be gathering for the holidays, the Center for Disease Control recently issued an E. coli warning for romaine lettuce. Approximately 30 people in 16 states were hospitalized due to E. coli infection after consuming contaminated lettuce from the Salinas, California region, and 75,000 pounds of salad products were recalled because of their potential risk. Well, today on Ringler Radio, we'll take a closer look at what's happening with foodborne illness, including litigation, legislation, food safety, and how contamination of our food can be best prevented. And our guest today is Timothy Litton, Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development at Georgia State University, College of Law. His most recent book, Outbreak, Foodborne Illness and the Struggle for Food Safety, analyzes the complex interaction of government regulation, industry supply chain management, and civil liability in the U.S. food safety system. It's quite an important topic, so welcome to the show, Tim. We're interested in learning more about it. My pleasure. Terrific. Well, Tim, dating back to the 1800s, there have been efforts to combat widespread contamination by pathogens such as E. coli and salmonella. How big of a problem is foodborne illness due to microbial contamination today in the United States? Well, it's a simple question, but the answer is somewhat complicated because it depends to some degree how you count. So I can tell you off the top that the CDC estimates that each year in the United States, there are 48 million people who suffer acute forms of gastroenteritis. I'm talking about being sick enough with nausea and, and diarrhea to be out of work for a day. So that's 48 million people who fall victim to foodborne illness each year. And of those, there are about 128,000 of them are hospitalized, and there are 3,000 deaths each year. So if you think about foodborne illness in terms of the number of deaths, as a public health problem, this is a much smaller problem than big-ticket items like tobacco, which kills over 400,000 people a year, or obesity, which is responsible for 200,000-plus deaths a year, or auto accidents, which is in the 30,000s. But the fact is, is it's similar to other common public health issues that we are concerned about, like drowning uh, or fire and burns or natural disasters, the number of people injured in hurricanes and earthquakes. We're talking about that sort of ballpark when you talk about death. So a kind of relatively moderate, but on the radar, public health problem. However, if you talk about the 48 million episodes of acute illness, the number of people who are, who are sort of felled a day each year, some people think they've got the stomach flu. If you've ever heard somebody say, oh, I, I had a bad case of the stomach flu, well, the flu is an upper respiratory illness. Stomach flu really is um, gastroenteritis, and it's usually caused by food poisoning. We're talking about 48 million people a year, and that is much larger than many other important public health issues the number of people injured in falls each year is only 12 million by comparison, and the number of people injured in car accidents each year is only 2.7 million by comparison. So foodborne illness really, uh, from the point of view of illnesses, is a very large public health problem, and it strikes 
um, you know, one in six Americans every year on average. Well, you know, it's a, it's, I think it's a bigger problem than a lot of people think. Uh, and, and for those folks out there who are wondering, what kind of symptoms do people experience from E. coli contamination? How would somebody know if they had it? Well, if you come down with a case of, you know, what you consider to be stomach flu, we have nausea and vomiting and diarrhea. Um, you know, if you're sick enough to be out of work for a day, you might take yourself to a doctor. And if you go to the doctor, you might get a sample, a stool sample, and that stool sample will be tested. And if it's tested for a number of different pathogens, if E. coli shows up or salmonella or listeria, any number of one or another um, pathogens that are on a state list, that test result will have to be reported to the state health department. And the state health department will then report that generally to the CDC. And that's how we gain these counts. So when you suffer that kind of acute gastroenteritis, it's most often food poisoning, and you can find out whether it's E. coli if you were sick enough to go to the doctor and get yourself a sample. Now, in very serious cases of E. coli poisoning, it goes far beyond just gastroenteritis, and we've seen in the recent outbreak for romaine lettuce that a number of people have suffered kidney failure, which is a long-term problem, uh, and ultimately, you know, people have died in some of these outbreaks from E. coli in, uh, in spinach and lettuce. So it can progress to be a very serious disease, and it can be fatal. No question. And, you know, during the whole area of litigation around this issue, when people, you know, get this uh, scenario and they have to potentially file suit, obviously there's a lot of the blame game that's being played in those, in those environments, in those courtrooms, and, and in those mediation sessions. So, Tim, where does the legal liability tend to fall in the cases that uh, you've been involved in or at least observed? Well, from a legal point of view, of course, the liability falls in the first instance on the maker or the producer of the food and anybody in the distribution chain who sold it. Depending on which state you practice in, uh, it may be that there's strict liability all the way down that food supply chain, all the way from the grower down to the retail seller, whether it's a supermarket or a restaurant. In some states, of course, there are tort reform statutes that protect some of the downstream sellers from liability unless they were negligent. But the legal liability really usually lies somewhere in the, in the food processing chain and in the sales chain. And typically these cases settle out with the producer maxing out their insurance and then often the distributor and they sort of move down the, the distribution chain and sometimes the supermarket or the restaurant will end up paying. Well, you know, Tim, there seem to be quite a f number of sources of contamination and uh, the opportunity for the kind of mischief that we've talked about here in this, in this arena. Speak to that. Wh wh where, where are some of the weak spots? There are usually sort of a number of failures that lead to these kinds of outbreaks. One of them is, is that, you know, it's very difficult to, you know, police uh, the water sources or, you know, problems in the field. When we're talking about something like lettuce or fresh produce, the fact of the matter is it's grown outdoors. So it's exposed to all sorts of pathogens. It's exposed to floodwaters that may carry uh, animal or human waste. It's, it's exposed to birds that fly overhead. It's exposed to workers who walk through the field. So there are efforts on the part of farmers and producers to sort of reduce these risks by implementing different kinds of hygiene in the fields or safety practices, but those sometimes fail. And when they fail, often there's an outbreak. Also downstream in the production chain, you know, your bag of lettuce usually contains lettuce from a variety of different production operations, a different number of farms. And when that lettuce all gets mixed in, one batch of lettuce that comes in with E. coli contamination can spread E. coli contamination through all those bags in the production line. And as a result of that, you can get a much broader outbreak because of the way lettuce is produced. As far as the FDA is concerned, you know, the FDA is tasked with being responsible for food safety on all of America's farms. Since the 1934 revisions to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, 
The FDA has been in charge of food safety on all of America's farms, but it's never been given the money to really enforce that. And so as a result, the FDA has never carried out any routine inspections on any farms anywhere in the United States. They've just never had the money. The FDA only shows up after there's an outbreak. And the fact is, it's generally true of states as well. There are almost no routine inspections for food safety on farms. Most of that activity is private. It's being conducted by private food safety auditors, and those audits are ordered by the buyers. So if you want to sell leafy greens to Costco or Kroger or Walmart, you have to get a certificate that you've had a private audit to certify your food safety practices. Otherwise, that buyer won't buy your product. So there are a lot of different possible failures in the system. It's a huge industry, and it's, a little, it's very difficult to think about you know, where the public resources would come from. So a lot of the activity we're talking about is private activity. No question. And you know, you've just described a, a massive uh, enterprise where, especially those, those areas where irrigation and, and water supplies are potentially contaminated, and also the fact that lettuce from different, different processing areas are, are mingled together and commingled. Um, it, it's, it's a very tough scenario, and, and obviously it doesn't take much to, uh, I'll use the term infect, infect the, uh, a much larger uh, supply of, of, these, these, of this lettuce and, and these crops. So it's, a, it's an, obviously a, a process that needs to be continuously monitored, and uh, you, you've spoke to it very well. Well, let's take a quick break right now, but we'll be back in a minute with more on this very interesting topic of E. coli and the whole issue of foodborne illness. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio, brought to you from Ringler, the nation's leading provider of fair settlement solutions. Did you know that Ringler is involved in a third of all structured settlement cases in the country? Ringler advisors work with all the parties in a lawsuit settlement to find the best possible financial solution for the people involved. Everybody wins. There's a Ringler consultant in all the major cities of the U.S. No one has more experienced experts in the settlement business than Ringler. Check out our website at www.ringlerassociates.com for the best information for injured parties, attorneys, and claims professionals to find the Ringler advisor nearest you. When it's your interest at stake in a lawsuit settlement, you want only the best, most objective financial plan. You can count on Ringler Advisors to create a customized plan that meets the financial needs of you and your family for the future. Visit RinglerAssociates.com to learn more. Well, welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. I'm your host, Larry Cohen. And we're discussing food safety with Tim Litton, Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development at Georgia State University College of Law. Well, Tim, what are the current problems plaguing the food safety system, and what would be some useful reforms to uh, fix it? You know, one of the largest problems that we have is, is that food industry is the world's largest industry. It's a $7 trillion annual revenue industry. And it's an enormous operation to try and regulate that. And the government agencies involved, both at the federal and then the state and the local levels, have all been given enormous mandates to try and oversee all of this production. And the fact of the matter is that they just don't have the resources to implement those regulations. So one problem is is a real shortage of the kind of resources necessary to carry out routine inspections from government inspectors. The second problem that we have is, is that there's just a lot of science that we don't know yet. 
there are a lot of things that we don't know about the way in which pathogens get onto food. And when we know about how they get onto food, we often don't know what the microbial load needs to be in order to actually result in people getting sick. So there's a huge disconnect in the science between what we know about contamination and microbial loads of contaminants in food on the one hand and human illness and rates of human illness on the other. So we don't really have dose response curves like we have in sort of toxics regulation and EPA. So those are two really big ticket problems and that makes it very hard to regulate. Now, Keep in mind, you know, most regulation occurs in the face of enormous complexity and a lot of uncertainty. But in food safety, we really have especially large amounts of complexity and uncertainty on both of these fronts. That makes it very hard for government to provide comprehensive regulation in this area. And keep in mind, it's not just like any other area like transportation or labor. This is an area that we all encounter every day, three times a day. We're eating all day long. So it's something that is a very present and salient risk. As I mentioned, 48 million people are struck by illness each year as a result of it. And, you know, the government's got to find some way to use the resources available to sort of wrap itself around this regulatory problem. No, no question. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the government regulation issue. Uh, during the Obama administration, the FSMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, was passed. Uh, how has that helped to fix the problem, if, if it has? The Food Safety Modernization Act, which was signed by President Obama in 2011, is the largest overhaul of the U.S. food safety regulatory system since the 1930s. It's a long time coming and involves a number of sort of big ticket initiatives. One is a number of initiatives to try and prevent outbreaks before they happen. Uh, a second part of the legislation basically is designed to try and detect and respond to outbreaks more efficiently. And then the third part is really about regulating imported foods because a lot of our food system now is hooked into the global food system, and we need to find better ways to sort of patrol our borders from you know, pathogens that might be coming in. The Food Safety Modernization Act is once again one of these very large mandates. Congress told the FDA that they wanted the FDA in very short order, 18 months, to come up with lots of new regulations for processed foods, for fresh produce, for meat and, 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 and dairy and, and poultry that are already pro, pro, uh, processed. And the problem is, is that you know, the FDA was not given the resources that they need to do this. This is a sort of standard story in American regulation. You know, the, the Congress basically says, we want you to fix the problem, we're going to put huge demands on you, and then we're not going to provide you the resources necessary. So what we have now with the FDA, uh, which is in the business now of implementing the Food Safety Modernization Act, is the FDA has been producing a lot of new rules, a lot of very heightened standards for trying to figure out how to regulate foodborne illness risk and contamination in food processing, mm -hmm. and in particular in um, you know, leafy greens and fresh produce we were talking about before. They have a new produce safety rule. The problem is coming along with implementation. Industry is finding it very difficult to figure out how to adapt to new, uh, new mandates from the FDA, and the FDA just doesn't have the resources it needs to both provide the training and then the monitoring and the enforcement down the road. And so FISMA is being rolled out, but it's being rolled out in fits and starts, and I think it's been a very heavy lift for the FDA, which is severely under-resourced, which, as I said, is a sort of standard problem. In America. Sure, no question about that. You, so, many, so many times you hear that, uh, mandates and uh, none, no revenues, no funds to, uh, to help uh, get it implemented. You know, Tim, the current administration seems to want to centralize all food safety in the United States Department of Agriculture, or the USDA. Is that a good idea? You know, every single presidential administration since the Truman administration has come up with a plan to centralize all of 
food safety regulation at the federal level into a single agency. As it's currently structured, there are about 15 different federal agencies, primarily the FDA and the USDA, but also fisheries and wildlife and the EPA, that are responsible for some aspect of food safety. And there's been this idea that's been floating around now for more than half a century that we could make the system work better if we just rearranged it bureaucratically and centralized it all. So the Trump administration, of course, has suggested that we put all of our food safety regulation into the USDA. I actually don't think this is worth it. And there are a number of reasons that I think make this problematic. First of all, there's not likely to be much congressional support because each of these different agencies has different oversight committees in Congress, and those are major opportunities for patronage for congressional representatives and senators. They're not going to give that up to sort of centralize the operation. The second is it would require a massive and complex statutory overhaul. There is a lot of statutory material that would need to be completely rewritten in order to carry this off, and it doesn't look like Congress is in any shape to do any sort of major statutory overhaul. Furthermore, there are very important differences in the type of expertise in these different areas. So the type of expertise you need for meat and poultry is veterinary science. The type of expertise you need for working on leafy greens and fresh produce is more, you know, agriculture and um, microbiology. And so you can put all these different professionals into a single agency, whether it's the USDA or the FDA, but it's not going to really unify them. They're still going to have different professional cultures, different training, and different regulatory problems. And I think the last and most important reason is is that at least six or seven other countries have done precisely this. They have centralized all of their food safety into a single government agency, and the um, GAO did a study on all of these, and there is not a single shred of evidence from any of these countries, even though they claim this has been a huge success, that they've actually improved human health outcomes as a result of this regulatory rearranging. So it would require an enormous amount of money up front to do all this rearranging bureaucratically, and there's really very little evidence that it would do much in terms of improving the health situation of people from foodborne illness. So, so with that kind of as a caveat, um, how would you foresee food safety measures being strengthened in the coming years? What, what do you think should be done? I think that the first thing that we need to do is we need to invest more money in the government system that currently tracks outbreaks and tries to figure out what their root causes are. As I mentioned, of the 48 million episodes of acute illness, we're only tracking 14,000 of them, uh, more, 14 or 15,000. In 2016, there were only 839 outbreaks that were detected by the CDC, and of those, there were less than 323 where they figured out what the food was that was responsible. So if you don't know what's causing the foodborne illness and you can't connect a person's illness to something that happened in the production of that food, you can't really make any progress on the problem. So I think we need to invest more of our government money into outbreak and tracing and the CDC's efforts to try and figure out when are outbreaks occurring and what's causing them. And then we're going to have a, uh, an issue, which is if we take money away from you know, inspections and we plow it into outbreak prevention or rather detection, and we figure out you know, when outbreaks occur and what's causing them, we're going to have to have somebody to figure out you know, who's going to be inspecting all the food safety operations to make sure that they're doing things to avoid what we're identifying as the root causes. And I think we need to lean more heavily on private oversight. And the form that that's going to take likely is private food safety auditors. Now, private food safety auditors have a huge reach. They carry out hundreds, you know, millions of food safety audits around the globe every year, far more than the governments of the world do. But the problem with them is that they have a conflict of interest. They're generally paid by the people they're auditing. And that creates, of course, all sorts of problems. And so one way to try and clean this up, I think, is to expose these food safety auditors on the private side to greater tort liability. 
if they don't do their job, if they don't live up to the standards of the industry standard for you know, responsible food safety inspections and audits, they ought to be held liable for any sort of foodborne illness outbreak. And the same way we've put doctors and lawyers and engineers under pressure from liability exposure to sort of make sure that everybody measures up to the standards of their profession, yeah. I think we could do a lot more in that department with private auditors. So those are the two things that I would push on. Terrific. And, you know, obviously pharmaceutical companies, too, are, are in that in that uh, bundle. And, of course, there are a lot of litigators out there that would uh, welcome the opportunity to, to hold their feet to the fire to make sure that uh, the public is protected. And, uh, you know, you've also mentioned, obviously, that the bureaucracy of government and uh, some of the political machinations that take place uh, sometimes get in the way of the most efficient way of doing things. So what you just suggested sounds like a pretty darn good idea to me. Yeah, I mean, I think the government's really good at certain things. The government has an information infrastructure that makes it unparalleled in terms of its ability to detect outbreaks and to trace them back. And the private sector just can't do that. But when it comes to inspection resources, the private sector has a lot more resources. and With a little help from the tort system, we can make sure that those are responsible alternatives to government inspection. Well, you know, it's been uh, a terrific show here, Tim, and you've provided the kind of expertise that I think a lot of our listeners are going to be really interested in hearing. Uh, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, Tim, to talk more about this or learn more about this, how would they do that? Find more information about me and my work on the Georgia State University College of Law website. And you could basically you know, put in my name, Timothy Litton, at Georgia State University College of Law, and my faculty page will come up. You'll find more about my work on food safety. There's also some work on gun violence and clergy sexual abuse litigation, and also the work of my colleagues on uh, health law and policy more generally. Terrific. And I'll, I'll remind our audience that it's Timothy Litton, L-Y-T-T-O-N. That's terrific. And of course, if uh, any of you out there want to uh, learn more about any of the Ringler Associates around the country, you can always go to ringlerassociates.com and learn about uh, not only this topic, but also you're going to be able to hear all of the Ringler radio shows. You'll also be able to hear the shows uh, also by going to ringlerradio.com, legaltalknetwork.com, or you can go to iTunes, where you'll be able to download this show and many, many others to learn about all the terrific topics that we've covered over the years. So with that, I want to say, Tim, it's been a pleasure having you here, and uh, we really respect and appreciate your expertise. Uh, thanks for being a, a great guest on Ringler Radio. Thanks so much, Larry. It's been a pleasure. Terrific. And for all the rest of you out there, go have a great day and watch out for the lettuce. Take care. Bye-bye. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio, celebrating more than a decade of podcasting and over 2 million listeners. Think of Ringler, the objective settlement advisors with more than 140 consultants in 60 cities nationwide. Visit ringlerassociates.com today.